I just erased a long essay by mistake. I had such a strong feeling that having writ it, though it is done, I am loath to rewrite it, not because I am lazy. After the frustration of the waste passed, I feel like one who writes a letter then doesn't send it or burns it better and feels the job is done. Quite an extraordinary feeling since the writing seemed so necessary. The writing, then the recording. It's a recent thing I feel almost compelled to do as the ideas and passions come thick and rapid in these strange times of change. Then I delete it by mistake and do not wish to rewrite. Good as it was, it is gone. May I, maybe I'm glad that I'm free of it. The impressions pass through me and on out into an ether. And it is a fruitless task since I'm just stunned at the strangeness of what I critique. I'm sure that what I think of the strangeness is as stunning to those who receive the critique. I'm reminded that I have felt this before and it has been pointed out how silly and wasteful this construction is and I agree, I suppose, that it is and still it isn't. What I write doesn't change who I am, only what I do and I am not what I do. I am only passing through this thing I am today. My thing today was on the notion of property. I won't go the same road this time. I might go deeper because the trivialities and rages of what I deleted will not be here. Suffice to say, and to summarize, I read recently about the Enclosure Acts in Merry Old England and that they were passed in 1604 and continued till 1914. So a bad idea for a very long time but how effective they were in affecting, reflecting, and changing the notion we all share of what society is and how it works for the people who compose the society. After centuries of pretty hysterical notions of the divine anointment of kings and queens, of hierarchies up and down the ladder to heaven as a way of justifying the very unequal distribution of the bounties of nature, the enclosures seem significant enough to elicit a before and after category like B.C. and A.D. So up till... 1603-ish, since change usually comes before the laws are enacted that reflect it, so that some, sometime during the reign of Elizabeth I, the idea of English aristocracy and its responsibility to the life of its less fortunate brothers and sisters changed, as if a light bulb went off, and rather like the most recent surge of inequality, it is scary how no one saw it coming, then when it came, all they did, it seemed inevitable and sudden justifiers appeared to cheer it on as progress, like the Industrial Revolution. Basically, before 1603, the English land was owned by the king or queen and by their extended families pretty lightly. The church too, but king and church were cheek by jowl, despite the odd spot spat in dividing the treasures heaven bestowed, and so society lumbered on, crusading now and again to vent the musty superfluity generated by Christian frustration. The world just wouldn't kneel to a man to them, with not much otherwise notion of progress to exercise the imagination or trammel the sleep. Things was the way they was. 
history and tradition ruled in a brutal status quo. Once the nation became a nation after years of bloody wars, the main preoccupation of Englishmen and women since 1066 to establish boundaries, the land of England became English, and if owning was to be done, why not have it done by the monarch? notionally and leave the actual working and loving of the land to the people who lived upon and off it. It was the land that fed the subjects of the realm, strengthened the long bowmen and pikemen who went to war for the monarch against the French, the Spanish and Arab and paid the taxes. In other words, growth was a thing of conquest which brought territory and booty pretty finite not a thing of exploitation of land and the resources one could mine out of it. Until 1604, Europe had a subsistence economy and settled into the hierarchies God had intended. Healthcare was pretty democratic in that there was none. The uh, Arab scientific breakthroughs had not dented our shores. Bathing made you ill and bleeding cured the ill bathing brought. Then it seems... Some genius figured out that land could be exploited for profit. Peasants could be made to work for wages on land owned by a new breed of owner, an innovator. Sheep could be seriously herded by a chap or two, and the first great cash crop, wool, made land profitable. So the enclosures. The actual start of the Industrial Revolution that drove the innovators and the market that demanded the inventions that later drove what we know as the Industrial Revolution a hundred years later. This we have been told quickened a sleeping world and all that followed has been looked upon and pronounced good. The tiny episode, personal episode, that conjured all this. I was out walking yesterday, working, walking. I'm rehearsing a piece into shape to record Passion in the Desert by Honoré de Balzac. There is a part of the story that overwhelms me, so I like to be in a kind of unpeopled wilderness when I get to this point in the story. I like to be in wilderness generally when I walk and work. I do not walk for exercise I was in my favorite spot. The weather was same. I was getting as worked up as a crazy actor might in the disused and abandoned corporate estate my father used to work in. A ten-acre sprawl at the edge of a reservoir, so abandoned it is full of deer, and yesterday I saw two foxes, a male and his mate. I had just finished a second time through the story when he rushed out of the woods and stood his ground while his mate scampered into the undergrowth behind him, brave young chap huge ears. Then then I started, then he bounced as if nodding at me and disappeared himself. I laughed out loud and started on a piece from the Trojan women, Hecuba, which also overwhelms me in the middle. Then somebody called out to me, mid-reverie, mid-Euripides, to tell me this was private property and I had to leave and suddenly I was deeply angry. It was not his fault, of course, but I said, I have been walking here for years. Well, he said, this is private property. So I almost said, and? I did feel, and? I was disturbing no one. There was no high fence. Cars could not get through. Over the years, many walkers had walked. Many bike riders had ridden, enjoying the quiet and the isolation. 
but these are irrelevant. I understand his position. He was doing a job. I suppose I am examining a definition of freedom. Thirty years ago, I was walking with a friend in deep discussion around a neighborhood near my late lamented Eden. For a stretch, there was no sidewalk. We stepped onto the narrow shoulder and kept walking and talking. So a police car slowed beside us and flashed its lights. A tall, apologetic cop got out and asked us what we were doing. Walking, I said. He smiled. Ah, yes, we just had a call. You were suspicious. Two suspicious-looking guys walking in the neighborhood. I said, you're kidding. He said, afraid not. Why? Maybe it's your coat. My coat? You mean this fashionable, expensive Paul Allen thing? Yes, he smiled. He took our IDs. Of course, we were not on a wanted list, apologized, and we kept walking. None the worse, except again a lovely afternoon, tainted where there were no private property signs or gates. Kith by J. Griffiths Born in 1793 to a sense of freedom, as unenclosed as nature's wild and common sky, John Clare knew that the open air was his to breathe, the open water his to drink, and the open land, as far as his knowledge of it extended, his to wander. And he began to write poetry of such lucid openness that it can best be described as light. His poems were, are translucent to nature, which shines through his work like May sunlight through beech leaves. Clare writes of the land as if he were a belonging of the land, as if it owned him, which is an idea one hears often in indigenous communities. His childhood belonged to that land and to his creatures. He knew them all and felt known in turn. One day, Clare writes, he wandered and rambled till I got out of my knowledge when the, when the very wild flowers and birds seemed to forget me. And then, to his utter anguish, came the enclosures. The acts of cruelty by which the common land was fenced off by the wealthy and privatized for the profit of the few. The enclosures threw the peasantry into that acute poverty which would scar Clare's own life and mine so deeply. Another quote. The survival of commons practices in Swedish law allows anyone to enter private farmland, to pick berries or mushrooms, to cross on foot and to camp out of sight of the house. The environmental history of Europe and Asia seems to indicate that the best management of commons land was that which was locally based. The ancient, severe and often irreversible deforestation of the Mediterranean basin was an extreme case of the misuse of the commons by forces that had taken its management away from regional villages. So, just by coincidence, I was reading Federalist Paper 19 by Alexander Hamilton this morning, seeking always the intended meaning of certain laws written in the high narcissistic and incomprehensible style of those guys. There is a passage, beautiful passage, where in the name of common sense are our fears to end if we may not trust our sons, our brothers, our neighbors, our fellow citizens? What shadow of danger can there be from men who are daily mingling with the rest of their countrymen? and who participate with them in the same feelings, sentiments, habits, and interests. 
He is disputing the fears of a well-regulated militia back in 1788. It throws some pretty blinding light on the rationale Americans give themselves for exercising their rights to own a firearm. Do we not buy them and bear them in fear of our countrymen with whom we daily mingle and with whom we participate in the same feelings, sentiments, habits, and interests? Or are our fellow citizens no longer these people, but another group with different feelings, sentiments, habits, and interests? That is clearly the presumption. It's a good read, and good if thorn in good if thorny prose. By the way, never once imagines one would keep and bear arms to shoot. It's a good read, and good if thorny prose. Which, by the way, in which, by the way, he never once imagines one would keep and bear arms to shoot your neighbors or to defend yourself against some fellow citizen. I think even the founders would think that private citizens taking the law, the new law they were writing that very day, based on the old law thou shalt not kill, would be self-evident. Insisting that murderous self-defense predates the niceties of urban life is questionable. You really can't just say, it was always this way. The emphasis in Hamilton is just on defending the state or your community against an invading army or an insurrection within, which may be because the musket was really only effective when you fired a lot of them at once, needing a group to do what one AR-15 does solo. As said before, it is pretty clear that the law-abiding gun owner is operating within this questionable history and tradition. The great ludicrous descent of Samuel Alito is, I think, grounds for dismissal. A gang member can make the self-defense claim. The founders knew even the musket was not made for self-defense. It is an invention allowing us to kill with minimum threat to self. It is, it is an annihilator. And only if you can get it out of the safe in time. It is precisely shoot first and ask questions later. And never that, if you can claim stand your ground. The connection to enclosures, the relationship between them and guns, is that if I walk free upon the earth, if at one time I could do that, and if this is is right, if this right is now more consistently taken from me, and if the laws are so modified and the intent as messed up as it appears to be, if a complainer seeing young men walking on the street cannot get a cop to come out and upbraid us, I can see a day coming when we might get shot. To this development, I'd say, where in the name of common sense are our fears to end? I'm not afraid. I'm habitually not afraid, but a lot of people are. And the argument that we have had guns around for hundreds of years doesn't take on board where in the name of common sense are our fears to end. Common sense is trumped by fear every day, every minute. I own property, the house I live in, from where I work. It is lovely now and always, wherever I have lived, many places. I was told once, dude, if I lived in that neighborhood, I'd own a gun. Think of your girlfriend alone at night while you are working. I told her this and she laughed. 
but this is where we are going from the primitive of John Clare, the primal response to nature, to the paranoid possession of it. We are cascading away from health, aiding and abetting fear in a really stupid and short-sighted way, being advertised and fictionalized away and away from Alexander Hamilton's clear reasoning on the civilized society where we don't fear our neighbors. And of course, the neighborhood, in, the neighborhood in my mind is diverse. I was brought up that way, in that neighborhood. And if I did not feel that way, if I thought I was surrounded by people who yearn to trespass on my turf, to do all the things culture insists they will, though I have never really experienced, I'd have the option of surrendering to my indoctrination, the one that surrounds me, or live another reality. Well, I live another reality. I would suggest the idea, since we are obviously more and more paranoid, that explaining away atrocities by saying we are victims of crazy people is redundant and um, crazy. The result of arming up to defend ourselves from crazy people just makes crazy of us all. And since the idea of property is so embedded in our fragile psyches that we cannot recognize the deep, deep profundity of the indigenous and old English take on it, we should do a mass voluntary tract at the psychiatrist's office. Insisting our crazy is the new sanity, while very profitable, is going in one direction, isn't it? Men largely cling like monkeys in a hurricane, saying, in face of all evidence, that more guns are the solution to gun violence. And that is crazy. <laughs>